Welcome to the Product Podcast by Product School. Here's a preview of today's talk. So what makes up the public ledger? Um, so the first part is the digital wallet. Two parts to the digital wallet. First is the private key. So um, this is a unique key which hashes into the public address. We can think of this like a cryptographically strong password. So this allows access to the account and the account balance. Um, the biggest downside here is that if you lose the private key, you've lost access to that account and all those funds forever. Um, so there's no judicial oversight. You, know, you have to keep this really, really safe. Um, the second part of this is the public address. So this is a public identifier, like a bank account number. Um, and you use it to transfer money to and from other accounts into your account. Right? In this podcast, we teach our listeners valuable lessons about product management and transform them into thinking like a product manager. We teach product management, coding, data analytics, and blockchain in 14 campuses worldwide, including San Francisco, New York, and Seattle. You can find more information at productschool.com. Join our Slack community of 25,000 professionals to network and stay tuned for our upcoming events. Hey guys, how's it going? Um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about myself first. Um, so uh, thanks to Product School for hosting this talk. Um, I spent 10 years at Salesforce as an engineer, then an engineering manager, um, and I decided to jump into crypto in last year. Um, I started out investing and you know, it was awesome and it was exhilarating and it was such a um, new space and I'm learning things every single day. But uh, what, at Blockstate, what we do is we provide advisory services to ICOs. Um, we also do blockchain tech consulting. So I'm going to start off by explaining a little bit about blockchain. Um, this is a uh, great description of blockchain, and it comes from an article in the Washington Post. So blockchain is technology that allows people or companies, without necessarily trusting one another, to instantly and irrevocably record their transactions on a public ledger. Faith in the ledger is maintained by thousands of computers worldwide that collectively police the system for forgeries and other types of fraud. So this is also known as distributed ledger technology. The first DLT, Bitcoin, was created in 2009. Um, we don't really know who this person is, but they called themselves Satoshi Nakamoto. It may have been one person, it may have been several people. We really don't know, and that's you know, um, part of the allure and the mystery. Um, so distributed ledgers were nothing new. But what was interesting about this system was a new consensus algorithm called proof of work. In doing so, um, the first strong cryptographic economic system was created. So all these things together you know, allowed for decentralized, immutable, transparent public ledger. So what makes up the public ledger? Um, so the first part is the digital wallet. Two parts to the digital wallet. First is the private key. So um, this is a unique key which hashes into the public address. We can think of this like a cryptographically strong password. So this allows access to the account and the account balance. Um, the biggest downside here is that if you lose the private key, you've lost access to that account and all those funds forever. Um, so there's no judicial oversight. You, know, you have to keep this really, really safe. Um, the second part of this is the public address. So this is a public identifier, like a bank account number. Um, and you use it to transfer money 
to and from other accounts into your account, right? So in this example, David wants to send five Bitcoin to Sandra. So he broadcasts a message to the network that says, hey, I want to send five Bitcoin and um, I want my account to go down by five Bitcoin and I want the amount in Sandra's account to go up by the same amount. To record this transaction, he sends a transaction to the miner processing um, this transaction and it propagates through to the network. So one question is, how can we trust that this transaction has been recorded into the decentralized ledger? So I'm going to need to talk a little bit about blocks and miners. Um, a block is a set of transactions. And each block stores roughly 2,000 transactions. Only one block may be added to the ledger at any one time. And it can only be added on top of the previous block. Um, so this creates a chain of blocks, right? So blockchain. And a side effect of this property is that previous blocks are immutable. So once you've recorded something onto the blockchain, you can't change it. Uh, so what ties this system together is proof of work. So proof of work is a requirement to define an expensive, uh, computationally expensive calculation that needs to be performed in order to create a new group of trustless transactions on the blockchain. This works through economic incentives. So a reward is given to the first miner to solve this uh, cryptographic problem. A network of miners compete to be the first to find this solution. Um, and as part of the reward, the winning miner gets to add transactions to the block and also gets the transaction fees associated with recording those entries. So right now, the mining reward for solving the block challenge is 12.5 Bitcoin, or roughly $100,000. And each new block is created every, roughly every 10 minutes. So if you do the math, you know, about 2,000 transactions for block, and every block gets solved every 10 minutes, that is about a transaction bandwidth of three transactions a second. So that's pretty slow, but it works. It's totally decentralized. You don't have to trust any central authority. Um, and that's, that's kind of amazing and great. And one last thing is that the block challenge difficulty scales with the hash rate of the miners on the network. Thus, thus the block difficulty should stay roughly at 10 minutes, regardless of whether you're adding uh, you know, computational hash rate power. So one final thing is, given that the, reward, the mining reward is so high, over time, um, as the mining challenge gets more difficult and the network compute gets higher, miners started forming mining pools. So mining pools are um, pools where they share their processing power and they split the reward equally. So if I were a single miner and you know, I, was, I had one single you know, uh, computer mining, it may take me 9 to 12 months to win that reward. And in the meantime, I'm just burning electricity, right? So uh, miners kind of band together where they share the portion of the reward in joining the mining pool. So if you look at this graph right here, um, BTC.com has roughly 25% of the compute power. So that means they get roughly 25% of the block awards. So they win a block reward every um, four blocks or every 40 minutes. So I talked a little bit about Bitcoin. Um, let's move on to Ethereum. So Bitcoin, we can think of it as a digital store of value. So it's like digital gold. Ethereum is more like digital oil. So you could use it to, you could buy and trade barrels of oil and they're interchangeable with each other, but you could also convert it into gasoline, rubber, electricity. Um, both 
gold and oil have value. They, you, you could trade both of them on the market, but um, gold is just a store of value. Whereas with oil, you could use it to power your homes, right, when you convert it into gasoline. So Ethereum was started in two, 2013 by Vitalik Buterin. So he, he co-founded um, Bitcoin Magazine in 2011, and then he started thinking about, how can I improve Bitcoin? What can I add on to it? And um, drawing inf inspiration from Bitcoin, he thought, hey, let me, let me just build a scripting language on top of Bitcoin. Instead of just transferring value from one account to the other, let me also um, create a language for application development. So a major part of Ethereum is the Ethereum virtual machine. This is a compute, storage, and memory layer on top of distributed ledger technology. So on top of recording transactions, each mining node can also run and execute smart contracts. And smart contracts are a general purpose programming language that can manipulate and store data directly on the Ethereum blockchain. So an example of this is CryptoKitties. I don't know if you guys have heard about it. It was this um, digital collectible craze in November. Um, but uh, that's an example of a set of smart contracts that you could build on top of Ethereum. Uh, in Ethereum, there are two main concepts, Ether and gas. So gas is used for the transaction fees, for you know, recording transactions or executing smart contracts, and transfers of value are done in Ether. So, and just to give you, you know, a, a brief idea, if I wanted to move Ether from my account to my buddy Leo's account, it would roughly cost me around 10 cents. If I wanted to deploy a smart contract, even the simplest smart contracts, that would roughly cost $2. And the more expensive storage and compute that the smart contract is, so basically the smarter the smart contract is, the more expensive it is. So what are some of the use cases of this new technology? So the first one is disrupting any third-party trusted intermediary service. So like an escrow service or a centralized marketplace. So Amazon, eBay, etc. Codifying legal contracts, autonomous corporations. Um, so some of you may have heard of the DAO or the DAO hack. Um, so this was, the DAO was kind of the first attempt at running a decentralized autonomous organization. It launched in 2016 um, and uh, everyone was really, really excited about it. It raised more than $150 million. Uh, it launched, and then um, a few weeks later, uh, there was a bug in the smart contract, and it allowed the attackers to siphon off a third of the funds. Right? So attackers came in and stole you know, almost $70 million at that point. This caused a ton of controversy. Um, you know, it dropped the price of Ethereum, and um, given that there was no real process for judicial review, there was a lot of uh, back and forth before the network eventually decided to hard fork to retrieve the funds. And we haven't done, uh, Ethereum hasn't done a hard fork since. So finally we come to initial coin offerings. So this is kind of the killer app for um, ICOs and for, for Ethereum. So what are ICOs? Similar to how Kickstarter is a donation platform, Ethereum became the preeminent fundraise mechanism for tokens last year. Uh, there is a standard, Ethereum standard, called ERC-20. This allowed anybody an easy way to create their own token on top of the Ethereum network. And as a result of that, investment bloomed. In, two, in 2017, there was over $3 billion raised through ICOs. Pretty crazy and pretty awesome. So what's interesting about this space is that it's constantly evolving. 
Last year, ICO sales were really common, um, whereas in 2018, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs running ICOs are actually deciding not to do public sales. Um, there's a lot of regulatory risk, at least in the U.S., for running a public sale, where it may look like a security. Um, so everyone's actually starting to raise a lot more money or raise most of their money privately. What's also interesting is they're starting to become a governmental turf battle um, over how to regulate these new digital assets. So you have jurisdictions like here in the U.S., uh, China, South Korea, where they've either banned cryptocurrencies outright or they are sorting out the regulatory guidance. And it's making it really risky for crypto startups to incorporate in these locales. On the flip side, we have the Caymans, we have Gibraltar, we have Taiwan, um, we have Estonia, and these jurisdictions have been much more welcoming to, to crypto startups, and we're seeing a corresponding capital and entrepreneurial flight to these jurisdictions as a result. So what are some of the pros and cons of running a token sale versus a equity fundraise? So ICOs, it's, it's you know, um, it's pretty awesome. The, the pros are you know, non-dilutive financing, and that's the big one. You don't give up any equity when you're raising your token. Um, all you're giving away is this token that you're creating. The fundraise is a much less time-consuming process initially. Um, you know, a lot of projects end up raising you know, 10 to $20 million in the course of several weeks, and then they get to focus on building their business. Right? You build a community of early adopters, and they also allow the average person to invest in early stage opportunities. What are some of the cons? So one, one, one of the cons is that token sales are treated as product sales in most jurisdictions. So taxed. Um, if you compare and contrast it to an equity raise, when you're raising equity, you don't pay taxes on that. You just can use those funds immediately, right? Um, another con is that this public awareness and community management never really ends. It's almost like a, running a publicly traded company and having to manage your investor relations. You always need to keep the community and token holders happy. So that's not so great, right? Uh, if you compare it to equity raise, it may take you a few months to raise you know, your first round of, of investment. But once you've done that, you can just build your business. Right? You don't have to keep your token holders happy. You don't have to you know, pump out additional marketing content. You don't have to make sure that your coin is listed and stays at the same price. Right? Um, so early entrepreneurs in the ICO space figured out the pros and cons of how to navigate this space successfully. And it led to some huge, huge raises. Um, so some of the notable projects last year, Filecoin. Filecoin raised $257 million. Uh, Bancor raised $153 million. Tezos raised you know, more than $230 million. And um, one of the ICOs going on right now, Telegram, the Telegram Open Network, it's raised in excess of $1.7 billion. And this is all just based on a white paper and a website. So what are some of the economics behind some of these large raises? Um, one big thing is just FOMO. Lots of FOMO. <laughs> um, lots of FOMO, lots of speculation. Uh, one other thing is we really just don't have a good way of evaluating the size of this market. It's a little like trying to evaluate web companies in 99. We don't really understand the economic models or the business plans of these uh, you know, crypto startups, and actually no one really understands it. Right. 
Um, so there have been several attempts to try to evaluate you know, why these tokens are worth this much. Um, there's a great book called Crypto Assets by uh, Chris Berniski and, and Jack Tater. Um, but there's also another great article by the guys at Union Square Ventures where they talk about FAT protocols. Do you guys know what FAT protocols are? Okay, one guy. <laughs> okay, so this is new content, so great. Um, so let's say that we rewind time back to the 90s and the creation of the web. Um, the, protocol, the protocols underlying the web, such as TCPIP, HTTP, they didn't capture any value. It was the application layer on top of the web that captured value. So you know, companies and websites like Facebook, Amazon, eBay, and they mostly captured this value largely in the form of data. So this is an example of a thin protocol layer. So the protocol didn't capture any value. The applications on top took all the value. In contrast, in the blockchain, it's argued that value is concentrated in the shared protocol. So platforms like Ethereum and Bitcoin, among others, um, because of this open data layer. So value concentrates at the shared protocol layer, and only a fraction of that value is distributed along to the application layer. So again, I'm going to go back to CryptoKitties, where it launched in November of 2017. It actually almost took down the Ethereum network because everyone was just buying and trading and speculating on CryptoKitties. And the CryptoKitties team did really well, but it actually increased the value of the, uh, the network value of Ethereum much more than that. Right, so this was a killer app in the form of CryptoKitties for the Ethereum network, and it ended up driving the value of the protocol layer underneath it. So this is an example of a stack with fat protocols and thin applications. So I'm going to reiterate this again. What is significant about this dynamic is the effect that it has on how value is distributed along the stack. The market cap of the protocol always grows faster than the combined value of the applications built on top, since the success of the application layer drives further speculation at the protocol layer. So this is huge. And, and this also explains somewhat these large raises So looking at the token ecosystem, tokens have gradually consolidated into two main categories, utility tokens and security tokens. So utility tokens, you could think of utility tokens like an arcade token or airline miles. Right? If I buy a bunch of arcade tokens, I use it to play skee-ball, I use it to play video games, I play air hockey. Same thing with airline miles. I could use them to redeem for flights um, and, and items. These tokens have utility within the ecosystem. Contrast that with security tokens, which are digital representation of equity. Um, so you know, think of you know, shares in a stock company. right? It is ownership in that asset. And there are many use cases. Corporate shareholding, tokenizing land deeds, option agreements. Um, there's also kind of the natural effects of tokenization. Um, which is, you know, you allow for fractional ownership, 24-7 trading market, and asset interoperability. And security tokens are generally a regulated asset, and we still haven't really figured it out yet. So the first um, security token trading uh, platform, T0, was supposed to launch a few months ago. It hasn't yet, but it should launch soon. And that goes without saying that there's rampant speculation for both utility tokens and security tokens. So what we do know 
is that the rise of crypto assets has spawned a whole new world of innovation. So you have currencies like Bitcoin, Litecoin, as well as crypto assets like CryptoKitties, Crypto Celebrities, uh, Crypto Celebrities. Uh, you also have these weird, you know, in-between assets like Ethereum, where the boundaries are a little more blurred. It's both a currency, you know, it's also a commodity, and it's a platform. So lots of positives here. Uh, some of the positives of this cryptocurrency economy are, you know, the big one is non-dilutive capital raise, uh, incentive alignment, breaking down walled gardens, sharing value among all participants. If I buy Ether, you know, and uh, CryptoKitties comes out, it increases the value of Ethereum as a network and the value of my coin goes up. So instead of, you know, a company like Facebook getting all the value out of the data that they own, it's shared within the whole ecosystem. However, there also are a lot of risks in this largely unregulated space. So speculators, pumping and dumping, celebrities, paid endorsements of ICO scams. Basically, it's the wild, wild west. So finally, let's talk a little bit about ICO success. So at Blockstate, we evaluated many ICOs in the past year, and we've consolidated our learnings into these four main pillars of what makes an ICO great. So marketing, token economics, team, and product. So this looks somewhat similar to how venture groups evaluate products and teams, but there are a few crucial differences. So if we look at marketing, for example, there is an increased focus on Telegram community management channels, there's YouTube influencers, there's ICO rating listing sites. If you look at token economics, investors look at hard cap. They look at what are the pre-sale discounts? How long is the token vesting schedule? What's your liquidity strategy? So a lot of things that are the same, but also some things that are a little bit different, right? And if you look in the last column in product, you know, a lot of investors, they ask, you know, where's your GitHub repo? Which is just a weird thing to ask, but everyone does it. So what should you think about next? Um, you know, let's say you want to run your own, uh, you know, cryptocurrency startup. What do you need to do to launch your own ICO? A lot of different areas that you got to look at when you're building, you know, you're building and running your ICO. But, you know, a small smattering of them are economics, game theory, cryptography, uh, security, scalable systems, distributed computing, software development. So this is a high-level timeline of the nuts and bolts of the ICO process. And this is also some of the guidance that we give to some of our clients. And this is very jurisdictional. So some things that work in the U.S. may not work, uh, you know, in other jurisdictions um, and vice versa, right? Um, but I'll leave this slide up here, and uh, that was it. Any questions? So how do you value a network that is new, like files can be set? Yeah. Why is it valued? Uh, so they raised 257 million. They're actually valued probably, you know, seven or eight hundred million, because. Um, Typically, when you're raising funds, you sell a portion of your, um, uh, you know, total raise. Um, yeah, and, and it is honestly a lot of FOMO, and no one really knows how to value it, right? If you look at the market cap of, you know, Ethereum or Bitcoin, they're in the billions of dollars. And 
I think that's what investors are hoping for is I'm going to jump in on this coin and it's going to be the next Ethereum. It's going to be the next Bitcoin. It's going to go to $5 billion market cap and I'm going to get a 10x return, right? Um, so that's a lot of what we saw last year where these projects raised a ton of money. And you're actually seeing somewhat this year some of the venture capital firms, you know, like for example, Sequoia, they're FOMOing hard into this space and dropping a ton of money. So um, it's still really early days and nobody really knows. So I, I do really feel that this is like 97 or 94 where, you know, you could put money into pets.com where it's going to go to nothing, right? You could put money into Amazon and it's going to like, you know, 8,000%, right? And you don't really know what's good and what's not yet. So I think 90% of the ICO market will fail, but the ones that'll stay are gonna um, provide a lot of value. All right. Is there a security token active right now? Uh, not really. So T0 is supposed to be the first uh, security uh, exchange. And there are some accredited investor uh, platforms like CoinList that are available where you could buy and sell unregulated securities. So this is, you know, um, products where they just did a private raise and they're not actually listing to the public at all. So, and they're purely securities, right? There were a bunch of projects last year um, around real estate that were unregistered securities and the SEC just hasn't caught up with them yet. So I, I figure that's going to happen a lot uh, in the near future. Yeah. When it comes to the blockchain technology as a whole, how do you see them being affected by the new GDPR laws that came into effect? Because you know, when there is a transaction on the blockchain ledger, it never gets deleted. But right, right. The GDPR rule are saying that there has to be a way to delete it. And right. Uh, so I forgot that this was being recorded. The question was around GDPR and how does GDPR, GDPR affect the blockchain? Um, so there's a really interesting uh, uh, standards body um, working on decentralized identifiers. And what they've come up with as best practices is that uh, you aren't going to store your data on the blockchain. You're going to store metadata about your blockchain because that is immutable. So you're going to store the immutable metadata about your identity, for example. But the actual identity piece will be stored in some other third-party system. So then you could revoke access, you could control it, and it does go back into this, you know, what is the right level of decentralization for any project, right? And there's, you know, totally centralized like Facebook on one end, and there's total decentralization like blockchain where if you put something onto the blockchain, you can't even remove it, right? So, yeah. So it's going to be the transaction is going to be separate from the personal identifier. Yes, yes. So storing metadata information about, you know, your identity or some other you know, piece of data that, that belongs to you. Yeah, but the transaction itself will never be deleted. The transaction, yeah. So the metadata will never be deleted, um, but the link it points to, the data it actually points to, you could remove that or you know, modify that. Yeah. So how much of the token economics or the robustness of the blockchain is it figure out before like, um, I, get, I, have, I have some friends who said that creating an ERC token is super easy. So I'm wondering if it has to be a simulation of work that they figure out on the 
what their token economic model is going to be. Right, right. So the question is around token economics and how much of that is figured out uh, before the token raise. Um, you know, it varies all over the place. Uh, if you look at coin market cap, so coin market cap is a listing of you know the top 1,600 coins. Um, you know, I would guess that most of these projects didn't really think through their token economics. Um, what we do with some of our clients is we think through it pretty deeply. Um, it actually really, really matters um, when you're talking to potential investors. Uh, what is the discount level? You know, if you're doing a tranched raise, like you're raising. Um, this actually starts to look a lot, very, very similar to like, you know, traditional equity raises, right? You may have a Series A, Series B, Series C, um, and this just happens on an accelerated time schedule, right? So, um, if you're getting in on the Series B, right, you, you know, the question you're going to ask as an investor is, what are the Series A guys getting, right? And and if that uh, discount is super high, let's say that it is, you know, 200%, you might be like, hey, why am I only getting a 50% discount? So we're seeing a lot of projects now, they really are thinking about it because it really affects how they raise and how successful their project is. All right. Uh, if there are no other, no other questions, um, I guess that's it. Um, I'm going to stick around for a little bit. So you know, if you want to chat afterwards. listening to the product podcast if you like this episode don't forget to leave us a review on itunes if you want to know more about our courses and next courts visit productschool.com stay tuned for the next episode to learn more about the secrets in product management